I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. Thank you for listening in. That's what a Stradivarius violin sounds like in the hands of a master. Nicola Benedetti was playing one when she performed with the Scottish Symphony in that recording. Most of us will never know what it's like to hold such a priceless instrument in our hands and make music with it. But a Stradivarius has come down through generations to the main character in Brendan Slocum's debut novel, and the sound he can evoke from it may be enough to win a worldwide competition until the violin is stolen. Brendan Slocum is a musician, music educator, and guest conductor. His new novel is titled The Violin Conspiracy, and he joins us from Washington, D.C. Brendan, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you on my book show. Thank you so much. I am honored to be here. So I want to play that recording of Nicola Benedetti again with the Stradivarius. And here's what I want you to do. I want to understand what an educated ear like yours hears in the music. So let's listen. All right. Okay, Brendan, take that apart. Um, tell this uneducated ear what yours hears and what you what you understand is really happening in a in a performance like that. Wow! Uh, as a violinist, um, getting a hold of a Stradivarius is a lifetime goal. It's a goal that every one of us has, just to be able to touch one. And hearing this recording of the Brook Violin Concerto, um, you hear every single note, every nuance mm-hmm. is just flawlessly executed. Those double stops are just, I mean, she makes them sound like I mean, there's nothing to it. And uh, on any other violin, aside from a Stradivarius, you really have to work not only at double stops, but at the runs and all the fast passages that come along. And you can hear in that recording, every single note is crystal clear. And that is the sign of a Stradivarius. Would it be ridiculous if I asked you to define what a double stop is? Because I have no idea. I, absolutely not. I'm glad you did. I'm <laughs> speaking like I am you know, like my music hat on. I'm sorry. Well, about like that. you're an expert. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, a double stop is when you play more than one note at a time. You're actually playing two notes at the same time on two different strings. Wow. Okay. So the other thing you said was that you can ev- you can hear every note and it's crystal clear. Now I know that's her mastery, but is it also the instrument because it is she is able to evoke these in another instrument they might just kind of slide together and slur a little bit what's the difference i guess i'm asking well you hit it right on the head um with those notes the clarity of the notes for a stradivarius i like to uh compare it to learning to drive Um, When you're learning to drive, if you're learning on a BMW, it's going to be really simple. It's a smooth ride. 
I wish I had a BMW. Uh, I had the opportunity to drive one a couple of times. That'll be my next car. Uh, it's a very, very smooth <laughs> ride. Good. And if you're learning to drive on, let's say, a beat up old, uh, my first car was a 1980 Fiat Brava. And that thing was, re- that was a challenge. Just opening the door was a challenge. And it, they both do the same thing, but you have to work five times as hard to get the same result. Okay, here's what I'm curious about. It, how is the geometry of the Stradivarius and other really fine violins different from, you know, a good violin? I mean, I, I guess I want to understand how the construction of this instrument influences the kinds of sounds that you're describing. There have been so many studies and so many, so much research done on that very topic. Um, the consensus is the only way to really, truly understand how a Stradivarius is as close to perfection as perfection can be in the world of violins is to take one apart and basically destroy it. No one is willing to do that. So the world may never know. So you've, have you played one? Have you held one? What was the experience like? Because boy, the, the scenes that you write, and we'll talk about this, are so vivid when this instrument is in the hands of your character. I have not yet, and notice I'm going to preface that by saying yet, been able to touch a Strad. That is one of my goals. It is one of my lifetime goals to be able to, if I can play one open string on a Stradivarius, I can say that I did it, and I will go down in history. Yes, this guy played a Stradivarius. What did he play? Doesn't (laughs) matter. He played a Strad. (laughs) That is my goal one of these days. Uh, You know, one of the things I'm curious about is, I mean, Nicola Benedetti is, I I don't know how old she is, but she looks pretty young in the videos that I was watching. I mean, is this the kind of instrument that you, you know, you, you have to have a certain level of maturity, the way an actor or actress would feel that they need experience and maturity to, you know, to play certain roles, like something in King Lear or Othello. I mean, is this the kind of seasoning and maturity you need to prepare to play on an instrument like that? Or doesn't it really matter if you've got the gift and the talent? I honestly believe that you you do have to have a certain level of maturity in your playing. Um, it, it's like if someone were to start on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star it wouldn't matter if they were playing. Well, actually, it would just a tiny bit matter if they were playing that on a Stradivarius versus, you know, a <laughs> milling really. uh, <laughs> beginner instrument. But um, it's I, I go back to the uh, car comparison. When when you get to a certain point, things become easier. You've got to learn the technique, and then the technique just becomes effortless. And that's the beauty of uh, the Stradivarius instruments. It's just anything you do, it comes out beautifully on the instrument. It's that well made. Is that emotional maturity or is that, you know, musicianship maturity? Personally, I believe it's musicianship uh, maturity because you can be technically proficient and play every single note and it will just be a bunch of notes. But when you have that uh, musical maturity, you know what you feel and you want to express that and make the listener feel the same thing that you do. And it's really easy to do on a Stradivarius. 
I mean, I think, so I think you're saying emotional maturity to have your hands on an instrument like this and use it the way it was meant to be used is as important, can be as important as musical maturity? 100%. Absolutely. Do you think some musicians reach that that kind of emotional maturity before others do and you can see it in their playing? And and if that's true, what does it look like? Oh, yes, by by all means. Um, it, it, it's different for, you know, it depends on the instrument. It depends on the person playing. It depends on the piece of music that's being played. Uh, you know, some people can emote Bach, which in my opinion is just 100%. Well, I'm sorry, it's 99% emotion and 1% notes. It's just Bach was a genius. Wow. Everything that he wrote, he, he did not waste a note. And with... Vorjak, he everything that he wrote, in my opinion, is passion. And when you get into playing Vorjak, it's you don't you don't have a choice. You have to play it passionately, and you have to emote every single nuance and just suck it dry. And just just everything that he wrote, all the notes, everything, it just comes out so beautifully, and you know exactly what he meant and what he wants you to feel when you're playing his music, and. With an instrument like a Stradivarius, again, that's super, super easy to do. And I love hearing people play uh, music. You can tell when they're playing music that they really, really love because you begin to love it too. You don't know why, but you do. I mean, this is, I think you're alluding to this, that these composers, you talked about the genius of of Bach, they, they wanted that. They were putting their own what maturity, passion, experience, genius into this work. But they also knew that it would be taken up into the hands of musicians that were very different than they were and that they were creating music that could be infused with the experience of of people that would play it very differently. And they wanted that? Uh, in my opinion, Bach is just, he is the epitome of genius. He knew I think, you know, 150 years, 200, 300 years down the line, people would play his music and they would actually feel what he wanted them to feel. I do believe that with Bach. That was his intent. Okay, so then, Brendan, compare that with a composer who is technically beautiful, whose compositions are, I don't know, maybe you'd say as close to perfect as they can be, and yet... What is missing from that, from the the spaces in the composition, are those places to to bring your own emotional experience into them. Can you think wow. of somebody whose mu- <laughs> whose music is? I'm testing you today, aren't I? <laughs> I see. I hope I'm passing. Wow. The the composer that would come to mind for me would be uh, Mendelssohn. I think Felix Mendelssohn. Um, he just he he was he was a genius as well. Um, often compared to Mozart, uh, they had similar life stories, and you know Mendelssohn died young, as did Mozart. Mm-hmm. Um, all of his compositions, in my opinion, the ones that I've played, the ones that I've heard, his symphonies, his concertos, his you know his chamber music, it's all every note is exquisite. It's it's just beautifully done. The arrangements are absolutely gorgeous. Um, but a lot of them are very straightforward. You just play, I mean, you, you play every single note on the page and it does what it's supposed to do. 
in other words, Mendelssohn, a lot of times when you hear Mendelssohn, you hear the same thing. You hear technically proficient uh, music. You hear every single note played. And it's difficult to get a lot of emotion out of a Mendelssohn piece. It can be done. Uh, the masters do it really well. But, you know, it's, it's, he's a challenge to do. This is so much fun talking about music because like, I, I know you're a music educator too. So that that's mm-hmm. why you have these wonderful answers to this. Here's another question <laughs> about this. Can do you think with the kind of trained ear that you have that you can, that you can hear life experience in, in these composers, not in the hands of the people who have picked it up to play the music. I think I heard you saying yes to that. Mm -hmm. But do you also see and hear the experience of a Mozart, a Bach, in their their time? Are there places that you can look for that in the music? That is a fantastic question. Um, I have been very, very lucky to have some phenomenal teachers who made it a point for me they made it a point for me to understand exactly what you just asked. When I was learning Bach, my teacher, she would say to me, when Bach did this, this was a dance, people would come and actually dance to someone playing this. And I never thought about it that way. It's like, oh, this is a bunch mm-hmm. of notes. Huh. So I have to play it like a dance. You know, I'm, I'm playing this, this, uh, this Bach sonata. And okay, so this is the part where you know, the, the couples come and they do this and they're, they're close to each other and then they pull apart and you can hear it and you want this to go a little faster. And I'm like, wow, this is fascinating. I thought it was just a bunch of notes that are really, really difficult to play together. But no, this is something completely different. It's a beautiful dance that is taking place. And, you know, he wrote it for that reason. It's like, oh, okay, I can see that. Now that I can see that, I can actually play it that way. And that's the feeling that I get whenever I play Bach. Okay, this is a dance. Every single note means something. And so what does that mean besides the pacing with which you're, you're approaching Bach's music? What does that mean about, about all the other ways that you bring that music to life? Well, in a lot of his uh, violin sonatas, um, you have the, the different movements. And in one movement, this dance is, is fast. So you want, a, you want a feeling of exuberance. This is going to be really happy and exciting and everything. And this next movement, it's slow. You want to slow the pace down. And in this movement, this is really fast. Everybody's excited. This is right before dinner. So you want to go ahead and get through with this. Let's go. Let's make it mm-hmm. fast. And boom, boom, boom. We're done. Now we get to eat. Um, you can really <laughs> sense a lot of that in box music. And, and again, that's, that's why he was a genius. And I am very fortunate that my, my teacher was, you know, just at the top of her game and, and she explained all of this to me and it made perfect sense when she did. And I'm like, okay, now I can play it this way and I can try to uh, get this sense of uh, whatever Bach was trying to convey. I can now, I know what it's supposed to be and I can now portray it to my audience. Okay, so I have one other question about this. Often on the page, and and you've probably, as you were writing the novel, you've probably thought about this. You know, on a written page in the hands of a poet or a, a f- fiction writer, a novelist, what isn't said is often is as important as what is actually on the page. You know, the spaces and the silences. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And 
I've wondered if it is the same in classical music and how how long it really takes as a musician to understand that and then what to do with those spaces. Hmm. Another fantastic question. Um, A conductor that I played under uh, recently said, the most important thing, we were playing, I think it was a Beethoven symphony, one of the most important things in a Beethoven symphony is the silence, the space in between each note. The silence says more than every single note on the page. What, where does the silence occur? Why does it occur when it does? Does it make you want more? Does it make you feel like, okay, we're coming to the end? The silence is really what takes you to the next section. And I think that's pretty much, when you, when you said it, like, you know, what's not being said on the page, it really makes you think. It makes you expand. It opens your mind. It's like, whoa, what is going on here? There's so many things that I can put in this spot. It's just, it's just it's an amazing technique. I love it. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. I'm in conversation with Brendan Slocum. He's a musician, as you can tell. He's a music educator, as you can tell, and a guest conductor. And his debut novel is a thriller about classical music titled The Violin Conspiracy. So there is this, I guess what I think of as a complex and dark history of this violin that comes into your central character, Ray McMillan's hands. And it occurred to me that this this violin holds the knowledge somehow of what Ray's ancestors have endured and then what he himself is going to experience. And before we talk about the plot of the novel, I'm interested in what you think of this idea, not only of Stradivarius violins, but of other musical instruments that in some way they hold history and knowledge in them? That's a fantastic question. I I love it. Um, Let me talk about my violin for just a minute. The violin that I'm currently playing on is, it's, uh, I I don't know exactly who the maker is, but uh, I had it appraised and it is French from, I can't pronounce the guy's name without looking at it. I'm sorry. Uh, made around 1750, 1755. And just knowing um, the time period that it was uh, made in, 1750, you know, 1700s, that's uh, Mozart was born in 1756. So it was probably played in France by someone who was playing under Mozart. You know, they played his compositions. And just the fact that not only is it a European instrument, but it was also around and and some of the first things that it ever played was some of the masterpieces that we listen to today. And just knowing that it it gives you a sense of just, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's, it's an um, amazing, amazing feeling that my instrument holds so much shared knowledge from, you know, the different uh, players that it was passed down from. And yes, oh, sure, the guy who played 
under Mozart played this first and then someone else played under Schubert and they played this and, you know, then it was passed along to Germany someplace and it was played under Beethoven and it probably got this scar from someone hitting it as they were trying to get out of a theater that, uh, you know, Brahms was playing in. And it's, just, I mean, just, just knowing all of that, all of these, uh, these people have so many uh, delicate connections to my instrument. It's, it, you know, every time I pick it up, it's, it's a thrill every single time. Oh, wow. I love that description. Are there, are there scars and nicks on it that you, you know, imagine were, you know, coming from the places and the times and the experiences that the other, the other players had, or do you oh, know 100%. the story? 100%. I wish I knew the story. The story I make up in my head is that Mozart personally picked up my violin and said, no, this is how this concerto goes. And then, you know, a few years later, Beethoven was like, I think I want, yeah, play it like this, play it like this. Well, I, you know, Beethoven had a hard time hearing, so he didn't really tell anybody to play anything a certain way. And um, I, I just like to think that um, each composer from that time period, I'm thinking, you know, 1750, that, that's, a, that's a lot of people. Um, a lot of famous composers that this violin could have played under, you know, for the very first time, anyone hearing this music for the very first time could have been played by my instrument. And I like to think every single nick, every single scar has a story to tell. So um, when I put a nick or a scar on it, I don't feel so bad because I'm in a good company. <laughs> so how did, how did this violin come to you? I mean, how did you choose it? What does it sound like? In the way that you've said, this is my violin. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting story. Um, one of my uh, old students when I was teaching in uh, teaching high school in Northern Virginia, um, my student, one of my students, Joseph Kim, good friend of mine today, was uh, looking for a new instrument. So I had taken him to a friend of mine who played in the National Symphony. He's uh, passed away. His name is Vernon Summers. He restored instruments and, you know, he would, would always have a, a good crop of instruments for uh, my students to choose from. So I went over to Vern's shop with Joe. Um, he had maybe 10 instruments laid out and Vern was just like, you know, try, see which one you like. Um, I was just kind of, you know, milling around with a few instruments and Joseph was trying these instruments he had one. He played it. Okay, that's that's nice. You know, that's cool. And I, just for fun, I picked this one up. I played it. I played three notes. I turned and looked at Joe and said, if you don't buy this violin, I'm going to. So <laughs> I, 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 in retrospect, I'm like, oh, that was a mistake. I never should have said anything. So <laughs> Joe ended up buying this violin. Oh, and, he did? Uh, <laughs> he, he ended up buying it and he played on it for, I think, 10, 15 years. You know, he, he did really well. He was my concert master for a year. And when he was in high school, he made district orchestra and all of this stuff. He did really well on this instrument. And after college, he said to me, you know what, Brendan, do you want this violin? Yes. Yes, I do. I do want this violin. I do. You can have it. I'm not playing anymore. Okay. So how much do you want for it? Well, I paid this much for it. Okay. That's what I'm going to give you for it. And th that was it. And I never let it go since. Wow. Oh. I mean, you know, what's wonderful about that is you knew immediately that this, the violin was meant for you. And yet it was in the hands of somebody you know, who meant a lot to you and whom you admire. That's special too. I mean, that adds right to the history of, of the instrument, that knowledge Very that much we were so. talking Very about. Very much so. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I want to talk about the plot of the novel here so listeners can follow the conversation. Um, 
your central character is Ray. It is McMillan or McMillian? McMillan. McMillan. Yes. He's a singular musician in the world of classical music. He's black. He has not had the kind of training and musical education that a lot of highly accomplished musicians have. Tell me more. What else should we understand about him? Um, Ray is a typical kid. He's a typical teenager in the beginning. And, you know, he's just an average guy who happens to love music. It's just one of those things that he just enjoys doing. It brings him happiness. He's pretty good at it. So he realizes, oh, you know, I'm not so bad at this. This is fun. I love doing it. Um, he's not the, he, he doesn't get the most support from people around him. His friends really don't support him. He doesn't have a great deal of friends. Um, his family really doesn't understand what it is that he's doing or why he's doing it. You know, it's just, why, why are you doing that? Shouldn't you be trying to find a job someplace? You know, this, this, you're never going to go anywhere with this, but it, it doesn't deter him. He absolutely loves music and that is central to his story. I mean, he's also in a situation where, you know, the the understanding today is if you can see it, you can be it. Um, that's a little too simplistic, but Ray doesn't even really have anyone around him who is demonstrating what the possibility is, what the potential is for him. So he's, I mean, in some ways he's kind of wandering blindly into this world of classical music with with really only the knowledge that he knows he has something special what mm -hmm. what what kind of context would you add to that what, what why is that meaningful do you think i think it's very meaningful because there are so many people just like ray out there i i was one of those people i i didn't really understand why i liked classical music so much or music in general, I didn't understand what it could potentially do for me. I really didn't know. I was, I was wondering, this was something that I just kind of stumbled into. Um, and I believe that it is a gift. I honestly believe that it's a gift from God to be able to not only play the music, but appreciate the music and, and love it and, and see it in a different light than other people do. You know, some people just hear notes. Some people just hear a beat, but, Ray actually gets to experience the music and he knows that he loves it. He knows it. That's one thing he is a hundred percent sure about. He's not too sure about a lot of things, you know, where his life is going, what's going to happen later on. He, but he knows 100% that he loves music. So no one in your immediate family, when you were growing up knew what played classical music knew much about classical music. How did it come into your life at all? No one at all. It is the weirdest thing. And I still, to this day, I I'm not quite sure how it, uh, how I stumbled along with it, how it fell into my lap. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but, um, my mom played piano a little bit, you know, back in, you know, the days when, when she was a kid, everybody took piano lessons for a couple of months. So she played a little bit, but not much, uh, when I was growing up. Um, my oldest, I'm the second of four kids. My oldest brother, he got piano lessons a little bit. Um, he wasn't really into it and I was excited about doing it, but I guess my mom decided, well, your older brother didn't do it. So I'm not going to waste time with you doing this either. And <laughs> like, okay, whatever. Uh, um, I remember, I think I was in third grade 
my music teacher played an excerpt of Mozart 40, his 40th symphony. Um, and everybody knows that theme. Dum, da-da-dum, da-da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da-da-dum, da 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 And I, for some reason, I knew exactly what that was. I'd heard it maybe on a commercial or something. And it just, I, it just did something to me. It just kind of embedded itself in me. And after hearing that, my teacher said, you can always tell who the composer of this piece is by this little song. And she said, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's a Mozart. I was like, okay, got it. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's a Mozart. That was my thing. So any chance, there was one, of, there was, I think there was a radio station when I was growing up in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, that played classical music on the weekends. And, you know, in between watching the baseball game on TV um, with my brother on the weekends, I would listen to this radio station. And one of the first things that I heard, the first piece of chamber music that I ever heard was Dvorak uh, Quartet Number 12, the American Quartet. And I was hypnotized. I don't think I could speak after hearing it. It was the most incredible thing I'd ever heard. And I just, I mean, I fell in love immediately with it. Does this mean that you were not doing what probably most kids your age were, which was listening to a lot of pop music and rock music and R&B and who knows what else? I mean, were you... Were you really, your imagination was complete, completely captured by classical music in your childhood? Well, that's the thing. Um, growing up, we would always listen to the radio. My siblings and I, we were always sitting in front of the radio. Um, and, and we knew every song on the pop station, every song on the rock station, every song on the R&B station. We knew it all. Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, Queen. Uh, Kansas, Boston, we knew it all. Every single night we would listen to these songs. But when I heard that classical music, it just, it was something that I'd never heard before. And it just expanded my mind. I was like, okay, I have all these songs and all of this music in my head. Now there's something that I've never heard before and I got to hear more of it. I'm hearing these other things all the time. Now I have to have more of this new stuff. This is great. So did you... I believe that you were on the path of, you know, performing at high levels. I mean, given the fact that there was really no one in your family that had experience with this, I wonder how it comes to you that I could make a life out of this. Were there teachers that were instrumental? What what happened with that? I honestly did not know until I had a teacher who told me, she said, you can do this. You're good. No, no, I'm not good. You'd probably say that to everyone. You've got a class of 30 people here. She said, no, you're good. You've got really good technique. I didn't know what technique was. I had no idea what she was talking about. Um, and, you know, I would play these things and we'd, we'd have a test in class and, you know, okay, well, I played it better than most of the people in here. Okay, well. Maybe they just didn't practice. It's not that I was good. They just didn't do what they were supposed to do as far as putting the work in. Um, my first, the first teacher that really uh, led me into the direction of, of seeing that music was probably something that I was going to do well at was Nancy Pierce. Uh, when I was in ninth grade, the orchestra that I, uh, the class that I was in, this was the first year that this particular school had an orchestra. So I was in ninth grade. It was a junior high school, and everyone else in orchestra was in seventh grade. So I was a freshman, basically, in a class full of seventh graders. 
And she said to me, well, you can play all of this stuff. You are not going to learn anything if you play violin. You're not going to learn anything. Um, but we need a bass. Would you like to learn to play bass? You know what? Why not? Sure, I can do that. But can I still play violin? Yes. You're going to go to orchestra every week, you know, to the county orchestra rehearsal every week, and you can play violin there, but we need a bass in class. Okay, I'll do it. Uh, I learned to play bass. I learned to read bass clef, you know, and I, I was a pretty decent bass player. And I would actually play with the band as well. I would go every other day and, and play bass in the band and bass in the uh, orchestra class. And my sister played cello at the time. So we were in the same class and I can tell you how much fun that was. Um, <laughs> so we're going along and I'm playing this stuff and I, I just, I, I loved it. You know, playing bass opened up a, 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 another door that I did not know existed. I was like, okay, well, I'm, you know, this is fun. I'm enjoying doing this. By the time I got to um, 11th grade, I went to a high school. There was no orchestra program at my high school. And a teacher, Miss Robbie Dobson, I'll never forget her, uh, she came over uh, because, you know, they knew that I played and they wanted to kind of keep me going. So she would actually come over once a week and we would sit and we would go over music for like if there was an audition for uh, all district or all state or whatever, she would work with me on it. It's like, OK, well, you know, I'll audition. I don't think I'm going to make it, but sure, I'll do it. And, you know, it, it, it I, I did and it worked and I can't believe I actually made it. You know, I wasn't taking lessons or anything. I was just playing once a week, sitting, sitting down, you know, just kind of playing. Um, and that worked out fantastic. And then she told me, she said, you need to go to college and study music education. I had no idea what that was. I don't know what that means. What do I do? You need to go to University of North Carolina at Greensboro and audition and major in music mm -hmm. education. Okay, well, what do I play? You can play anything. It doesn't matter. Trust me. <laughs> okay, well, wow. I, I did. And, and it was, I didn't even think I was going to, I didn't even play a concerto. I think I played, so funny, this piece keeps coming up. I played uh, Rosa Midra by Ray Fawn Williams. Uh, which is central in the book. It's and, in the uh, book, yeah. Yeah, a beautiful piece of music, my mom's favorite piece. And I played it, and um, one of the professors who was listening to me audition said to me afterwards, he's like, are you taking lessons? I said, no. He said, you have a beautiful vibrato. I was like, um, okay, thanks. I just kind of hmm. did that, but all right, <laughs> I appreciate it. Does that mean I made it? Yes, you're in. What? what are you talking about? Is this serious? Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. Things are really happening here. <laughs> That's basically what it was. Wow. My gosh. You're listening to a conversation with Brendan Slocum. As you can hear, he's a musician and a music educator and a guest conductor. And he's out with his first novel called The Violin Conspiracy. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show. Um, along with the you know, the the experiences that your character, Ray McMillan, has with having people encourage him as as from your own life in his in his musicianship. He's also experiencing this overt racism. He's in he's experiencing, he's being subjected to this tyranny of skepticism and low expectations. And I, I thought this was interesting. As he starts to be invited to perform in festivals and at universities, he realizes that he's being slotted into a specific place in the program. And I gather from your author's note that you've experienced both this kind of confrontational racism 
and then that subtle, insidious racism within classical music. I, I, I'd hoped you would talk a bit about that. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and, and the, the latter that you mentioned is probably the, the one that hurts the most. Because, the insidious, the, the oh, more yeah. subtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just, I mean, when, when people say things to you like, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting it to be that good. Oh, you actually can play that thing. Hmm. It, it hurts. It's, it really hurts because I know the amount of work that I put in. I've done just as much work, if not more, than the next person, but they don't get comments like that. You would never say something like that to the person sitting next to me. Why, why is it me? You know, I was, I was um, conducting, I was asked to conduct uh, a county orchestra, and, you know, they were choosing the program, and one of the pieces that they chose was, was something that was just outrageously easy, because I, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I don't think that they thought that I could handle it. And I just kind of, you know, I, I, I smiled and I nodded. Okay, that's lovely, but I think we're going to go with something more traditional. Like we're we're going to do Mozart twelve. I think we can handle that. You know, just just things along that line. I'm I'm unfortunately accustomed to it, um, but it it does hurt. It does sting a little bit every single time. And so do you think that these people that would invite you to conduct think in in some distorted way that they are being, I don't know, helpful, encouraging? I mean, there's a lot of layers to this. How do you, how do you take that apart? What's really going on here with them? I mean, they're not bringing you in, I ass- well, as, as you say in, in your author's note and in the novel – you know, you kind of get slotted in and then there's a check mark. And yeah, we did our diversity and inclusion thing here. Mm-hmm. But what else <laughs> is going on with that? I am an optimist. And I like to think that some of these instances occur because people just don't know any better. They think they're doing you a favor by making things easier, by, by simplifying things for you. They think they're helping you out. They, they truly just don't get it. Um, it's just, it's just ignorance. That's, that's all it is. And a lot of times I do my best to very gently, very subtly explain to people, you know, this is, I'm just like everyone else. I'm totally qualified. I'm probably overqualified for this, but that's okay. I'm going to smile and do this anyway. Um, just, I, I, I try my best to, to get across to people that lowered expectations don't help anyone. If you're gonna if you're gonna lower your expectations, what is that going to do for me? It's not going to do anything for me. It's not going to do anything for the students that I'm teaching. You wouldn't want someone to lower expectations for your kids. So why would you do that to someone else? We're not going to do that. Yeah. Uh, so one of the subplots, as mentioned in the introduction here, is that as Ray is preparing for uh, this big worldwide competition, the Tchaikovsky competition, the violin, the Stradivarius, he's come down in his family and he discovers it's very valuable, is stolen. And so he has to, if he wants to compete, he has to prepare on a different violin. Well, I, I have to tell you that I knew nothing about the Tchaikovsky. I mean, I, I knew of it, but I didn't know about the culture of this competition. That was so fascinating, Brendan, really interesting. Now, have you been to this world-renowned competition? How Will you talk a little bit about the culture of it? What What is it I, like behind the scenes? 
I have not been, I've not competed in the Tchaikovsky competition. Just um, knowing about, you know, when you're in college, you you read about these things. Oh, there's a competition. Oh, should I enter that one? Ooh, you have to play this and this. I'm not quite ready for that yet. Um, a lot of the contestants from the research that I've done, you know, they they prepare specifically for this competition. And it is it is major. It is, I think I describe it as the Olympics of classical music. Um, and every four years, the best of the best of the best, you know, from all over the world, kids that have started playing basically from the age of three, and they will practice the same piece for years and years and years to get it to the point where it's competition ready. It is definitely cutthroat. Wow. So one of the pieces of music that Ray plays in the Tchaikovsky competition is Tchaikovsky's Serenade Melancholique. And your writing was so evocative and so vivid about the experience of playing this piece of music that I thought we could listen to uh, the sound of Itzhak Perlman playing Tchaikovsky's Serenade Melancholique. And then on the other side, hear a little bit about what you hear, because that's interesting too. Let's listen. Sure. like to be inside your head as you're listening to that music. So what what kind of imagery comes to mind? What do you hear there, Brendan? First, it's very dark. It's very cold. That is definitely uh-huh. Russian. It's dark and cold. And as I'm listening to Perlman play that, of course, he is a master. Um, he played what you just heard all on two strings. Um, he was playing that on the G and D strings of his violin, of his Stradivarius violin. And just you can feel the sadness. You can feel how Tchaikovsky wanted you to, he wanted you to feel what he was feeling. He was a very, very sad man, um, had a very tough life. And the, the person that he wrote it for, well, I, I won't get into all of that, but it's, it's, it's. No, go ahead. Evoking. Get into that. Yeah. <laughs> Tchaikovsky <laughs> had a rough life. It was really rough. Um, he, there were things that he was going through that, you know, he, he just had to keep to himself. He couldn't, he couldn't share and he couldn't express like other people could. He was miserable in his work life. He was miserable in his love life. He was sick, you know, and and, and I think that music in this piece specifically, um, it allowed him to express what he had never been able to say to another person. And you get it in every single note. Every note is just thick and full of sadness. And that's what he was trying to evoke. And I think Perlman did a beautiful job of expressing that. And I, I love that piece. I love that passage that you played. I was actually sitting swaying as you were playing. I was hoping we get to hear some more. It was awesome. I love it. <laughs> well, hey, Alex, let's bring it back up. Let's <laughs> listen to a little more of Tchaikovsky's Serenade Melancholique.
beautiful. You know, I mean, even the pizzicato you, and the chili and the oh, I love it. It's oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, until you said it's dark and cold, I guess okay to the untrained ear, it sounds delicate to me. But I, you changed my perception of that. The you know the second time listening to that, it it didn't sound cold to me. So so what evokes that? that kind of frigidity to you in the music? Hmm. Good question. Um, I, because of the, the background chords, you hear this, this lush, this, this just solid chords, this sustained chords in the back. And with the pizzicata, with the plucking of the strings and the celli and bass, and I believe it's the violas, you hear just pits, 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 pits. To me, that's someone walking very slowly in the snow. It's, it's, it's cold and they're walking from place to place. They're going from here to there. And it is a long, arduous trek because it's so cold and it's so much probably carrying something really, really heavy and, you know, thinking very sad thoughts and this is what's going on. And man, I wish I was inside by the fire, but I'll get there soon. I just have to keep going. That's what I get. That's what I get from it. It just sounds really cold to me. I'm so glad you described it just like that, because (laughs) one of the one of the things that surprised me about being in your character's frame of mind when he's playing is how visual and specific the imagery was. I wondered if, if that's kind of the shared experience of musicians that, that it is a very, I'm visualizing a scene. And I, as I play this music, I'm working my way through that scene and I see the snow falling. And as you said, I see people carrying things or is that somehow unique to how you approach music. I truly believe uh, musicians, to an extent, all musicians do exactly what you just described. Um, you, you, you do get transported to a place. You do, uh, you visualize exact every single note. And um, the, the unique thing about it is each player, you can visualize something different. Uh, you can hear mm-hmm. the same person play the same piece and you can get a bunch of different things from it. You, you, it's, it's, it's a tremendous gift that you uh, can receive as a musician. That's why I love listening to several recordings of the same piece. You get something different every time. Well, I mean, so that's the other thing I wonder. In an orchestra, if people have, I, I guess, how explicit is an orchestra, you know, is the leader in the orchestra, the, the conductor, about what the visual imagery is so that the whole orchestra is on, you know, kind of this similar path and having these similar experiences with imagery? Or does that really not matter? Oh, it matters. Oh, it's, it, it matters tremendously. And I'm really glad you asked that. Um, it's conceptually, you hit it right on the head. It's the conductor's idea of what he wants the orchestra orchestra to express uh, visually um, in his imagery. It's like, okay, so we follow the conductor to express this feeling of exuberance here, or we really want sadness here. And as a musician, if you're playing under a conductor that you don't happen to agree with their interpretation, it makes it a little Mm -hmm. tough because you're like, oh, he wants this slow or they want this to be played long. And I much prefer it this way. And you just kind of have to bite the bullet because you are just one in a group of many. You know, 10 people might feel the same way that you do, but 
50 people might feel the same way that the conductor does. And, you know, it's, it's not a fight. You all have to work together and it may not, you know, this won't be the last time that you play that piece. The next time you play it, it'll probably be done the way that you want it to. But for now, okay, we can give the audience, we can give the audience what the conductor wants them to have. You know, part of the reason that they came to hear this particular group with this particular conductor is because of their interpretations. Hmm. We're going to close, and I really hate to say those words because I could talk to you for another hour about music, <laughs> um, but we're going to close with, I think, a favorite of yours, Florence Price and oh, yeah. Violin Concerto Number no. 2. Okay, first, tell me what it is that you so admire about her before we listen to it. One thing I really like about Florence Price is I, I find her to be very, very brave and bold in, in her writing um, a lot of the runs that she does in her violin concertos, I mean, it's just, it's not something that you would expect. You're listening to Mozart, you're listening to, you know, Schubert, a Schubert Sonata, or even a Telemann concerto. And it's, it's expected, okay, this is going to go from here to here. We have this chord change. All right. That's pretty much expected. And they do it beautifully. But Florence Price, I mean, she will just throw any and everything into the music and it works. Lots of people try to, uh, you know, their compositions, they just try to throw everything under the kitchen sink. It's like, all right, I put it in there just to put it in there. But hers actually works. And that's one thing that I've always admired about her music. And, and what is the imagery that comes to your mind when you hear violin concerto number two? Wow, what do I... <laughs> that's so many things. Because as I mentioned... She puts so many different techniques into her music. I think it really depends on the, the section. To me, it always sounds like um, her, her pieces of music. And I also get this from another composer, William Grant Still. He wants you to know that he is here. And Florence Price is the same way. It's like, I am here. I am doing this. I know you think I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to, and it's going to be good. All right. Brendan, I will say thank you for a wonderful conversation and a lot of schooling that I really enjoyed. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Carrie. Brendan Slocum's new novel is called The Violin Conspiracy. Beautiful.